Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. Lately, between me and my friends, one particular topic has been coming up over and over again. Not constantly, but enough to really take notice of it, and I thought that I would share it with you as well. That topic is boundaries. So the first question, of course, is what is a boundary? And this one is very difficult to answer, in fact, because we live in a society where boundaries are sometimes simply not used, greatly misunderstood, entirely disrespected, or given a false label. And a lot of the reasons why this is the case is simply because there are quite a high, high number of abusive relationships, and one of the indications of an abusive relationship is the complete disrespect for boundaries. For example, one of the biggest sets or most common sets of um, abusive relationships is parents to children. And the disrespect of boundaries is shown really on both ends when it comes to this. For example, a good example of a boundary, perhaps just in the sense of a boundary for society, is that children shouldn't cross the road in a busy street, unless, of course, you're in a crosswalk and you've hit the button and so on. That is something that is common to society, but typically what happens is that a parent will try to explain to their child that they shouldn't cross the street, and when the child asks why, if they've already gotten to a point of exasperation, in which unfortunately happens quite often, they might simply settle with saying, because I said so. Now, I've talked to a number or a few of my friends about this sort of thing, and they, like me, have been extremely frustrated in the past whenever their parents gave them the because I said so explanation. But really, a lot of times when this comes up, it's for one of two reasons. One of them, in the case of this not crossing the road scenario, is simple laziness. The answer is, of course, that the rule is not objective, because if we didn't have roads and if we didn't have motor vehicles, etc., etc., um, traffic lights and so on, the rule would obviously not exist in the first place. So, quite understandably, a child who doesn't understand really much of anything about the world yet, and they're learning it as they go, certainly would not understand as some natural, instinctive, or moral thing that it's not okay to cross the road. But for a parent to go through that whole mental process would take a great deal of effort, and a lot of people are not willing to take that effort. But the fact of the matter is, both parties might learn a great deal if the parent actually takes the time to explain it. And the other reason, of course, why a parent might not explain these things is simply not understanding it themselves. They haven't really gone through thinking these things through at all. Now again, as I just said, the child asking the question might be a great opportunity for the parent to begin to understand, oh yes, obviously the moment you start giving it thought, this would not have existed in the first place if it wasn't for modern society in general. Now of course, another thing that parents will often do when it comes to rules like this, not usually rules like crossing the street, but rules that take place around the home, uh, which is another 
decent example of boundaries, by the way, is that parents will begin to act as if this has some moral component, when in very, in a very obvious sense, it doesn't. It might be a rule like, once you're done playing with your toys, put them away. And if the children continue to not pay heed to that, partially because, of course, they might not understand why on earth this rule exists in the first place, then the parents might, not necessarily on the direct sense of, you know, cleaning up their toys unless they start invoking things like cleanliness is second to godliness or something like that, they might simply bring up, because you are being disobedient to your parents, you're being immoral. Now, they might not say that directly, but that is the implication because, of course, to obey your children is a good thing. Or sorry, to obey your parents is a good thing and therefore to disobey them is a bad thing. What you're really invoking is the idea of, of morality and immorality. But what has actually occurred when it comes to this idea of rules, i.e. boundaries, is nothing of the sort whatsoever. And you have just placed a moral character on something that doesn't have a moral character at all. Because, of course, if you were to begin to have a genuine conversation about these matters at all, you would begin to come to the point very quickly that there is nothing objective and certainly nothing moral about cleaning up your freaking toys. Now, you might go into, if you gave it some real honest thought, you might go into the utility of such habits when you grow up into a teenager and into an adult as far as relationships are concerned. For example, if you're still somebody who leaves a mess everywhere and you have become an adult and you are now living with roommates, you're probably going to have a much harder time getting along with them if you haven't learned the simple habit of cleaning up. And for anybody thinking at the moment that children are not um, intelligent enough at that young stage, say, you know, three to five, to understand such arguments at that phase, well, if they're not capable of understanding these sorts of things at that point, then why do you have the rule? Why would you impose something upon them which they cannot even understand and which has no objective or moral component? And if they can understand it, and you simply haven't engaged them in that sense, then you really don't know whether or not the child is capable of understanding this. The fact of the matter is you have not taken the time. You have been too lazy or unwilling or exasperated to even begin to explain this to them in the first place and see whether or not they can grasp your arguments. Or perhaps the fact of the matter is you're not prepared enough to make a decent argument, so you don't want to go into it. But arguments when it comes to a non-abusive situation, are fun. Because both people want to learn, both people should be curious, both people should be interested in the thoughts of the other person. So if you can begin to have these arguments and debates and explain things well, again, both parties are going to learn something and you can make a rule that both people, in fact, agree on. And that is highly beneficial. But what actually occurs in real life most times, unfortunately, is that you have exasperation on both ends. Children constantly asking why, because they do have that wonderful childlike curiosity and parents who are not willing to answer those question in, questions in any objective or understandable manner. So what you have in the end is a cycle of exasperation 
the child get, growing more and more exasperated, asking why, 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 and the parent exasperated by the why, 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 not willing to answer the question. Both parties in this case are contributing to the exasperation, but the responsibility rests on the parents. So I've already pointed out a few of the abusive ways that this comes out, particularly in the relationship between parent and child, where the rules that the parent is trying to impose are given a character that they don't have whatsoever. They're given something like an objective standard, which doesn't exist, or a moral standard, which doesn't exist. And if you give a moral character to something that does not have a moral character, that is moral abuse. In other words, you are trying to manipulate another person into following some arbitrary rule based on the idea of you are a bad person if you fail to adhere to this rule. Now, returning to the matter of what a boundary really is, we should already be beginning to see that it has something to do with ideas of what to do and what not to do in the case of a relationship. That relationship might be with a child or with a parent. It might have to do with your relationship with society or a friend or a loved one. Now, I'll get into a more technical definition of what boundaries are later, but right now I want to continue going into some examples just to give a concept of what a lot of people really deal with in these areas. So, let's say that you're in a relationship with a significant other, boyfriend or girlfriend, right? And uh, in this day and age, of course, a lot of relationship has to do with phone communications, either voice communication or text. Now, you're, you are uh, maybe the slightly more needy one in the relationship in this example. And your significant other asks you for various reasons, maybe going out to some trip or uh, for some other reason, uh, I'm going to need, um, you know, silence, essentially, no texting for uh, about three days, a few days. And again, you're kind of the more needy one. You might have a bit of separation anxiety. Um, by the way, the reason why I'm coming up with this example is because, hi, I'm that person uh, in a relationship. I'm typically the one with the higher separation anxiety. Now, of course, I try to take ownership of that and to deal with it and act in a more mature manner. But whatever the case. Um, just say you're me in this in this example, and you know you've been given this boundary or this temporary rule of uh, can't communicate for about three days. Now, if you, being the nervous one in this situation or the one prone to nervousness, then renege on that. You you've agreed to it, you know, before the three days go by, or again just a few days, whatever the case may be, and you text the person. They should be, the other person, the significant other, should be understandably rather peeved because you agreed to a rule, a temporary rule, a boundary, and you reneged on it. You did not honor it. Now, this is, be this is beginning to get a little bit closer to what the significance of boundaries really are. See, if you go back on it, what are you probably going to do? You're probably going to act as if perhaps you didn't actually uh, renege on this agreement or that you didn't understand it, you thought it was only for one day, or you're going to do something if you're left simply to your own devices to try to justify your behavior. You didn't understand, you didn't hear it, something like that. 
Now, if you do this sort of a thing, what you are effectively doing is you are devaluing the conversation that you had in the first place and the needs and desires of the other person. He or she asked you for radio silence, so to speak, for a few days, and you didn't even, you couldn't even manage to do that. At the end of the day, what you are really saying is that my nervousness, my emotions, my desires trump yours, right? He or she asked you for radio silence because you got nervous, because you couldn't handle it, you reneged on that agreement. You are saying when she or he first gave you the desires of his or her heart, needs, uh, whatever, requirements for a temporary thing, uh, the moment that you got into a emotional situation, probably roughly matching where they were in the first place, asking you for that temporary rule, you are saying my desires, my emotional uh, difficulties trump yours, right? So what are you doing? You are encroaching on the agreement. You are moving the boundary line in a way that has not been discussed. You have not agreed to the change in the boundary lines and you are disrespecting them. So you're simply saying, I trump you. And this again goes back to the original um, example that I was giving where parents, without any objective or moral reason for giving the rules that they give, when the child tries to engage in a very honest and obviously desired conversation for an explanation as to why these things exist in the first place, typically what a parent will do is simply power play. Because I say so. And what they're really saying is because I'm bigger, because the fact of the matter is I have responsibility over you. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. I'm more powerful. I don't need to give you an explanation. I can just overpower you, say that you have to do it because reasons, because morality, whatever BS explanation they might come up with, and you have to because reasons. What they're really saying is your preferences don't matter. Now let's go into another example of the abuse of these things, and this is the religious example. And this, in my opinion, is among the worst because it is the epitome of taking the idea of boundaries and trying to put a moral character on things that have no moral character whatsoever. What am I talking about? I'm talking about really two extremes that exist in the religious and specifically Christian community around these things. And of course, myself being a Christian, I have a good deal of experience with it. They will say things like, Jesus doesn't have any of these boundaries. He would go to the nth degree. He would absolutely not say stop at any point. And he would do everything in his power to reach people for the kingdom or whatever. So boundaries don't matter with Jesus. Now, if you isolate certain things that Jesus said and certain ways that he encouraged us to behave, you would agree with that. Now, on the one hand, that's cherry-picking. On the other hand, if you take the way that Jesus actually behaved, you couldn't believe that for a second. And what I mean by that is, yes, on the one hand, Jesus said, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn to him also the other. 
Now, first of all, that can be quite misunderstood, and I've discussed in earlier podcasts how that might actually be a massive power play. Or you could take the example of if a man asks you to carry his, uh, what was it? I think it was cloak, maybe it was armor, a mile, uh, go with him too. Now, this again seems like an extremely pacifist and going beyond the normal boundaries kind of behavior but as a matter of fact in cultural context what he's talking about is something that the romans had as a a legal edict to the jews if a centurion asked you as a jew in that time to carry his armor for a mile you were by law obliged to do so so what jesus was basically saying is obey the law and and as a matter of fact make it make a point that you in you will want to do more or sorry you would have wanted to do this even if he hadn't asked you and you will go the extra mile or maybe it wasn't exactly that maybe it was i am so secure in my identity in christ that the fact that you rule over me and you can force me by law to do this thing i'm going to flaunt the fact of my confidence and go an extra mile and confuse the heck out of you. Um, what I'm trying to point out is not necessarily exactly what Jesus was saying, even though I kind of worded, that, worded it that way. I'm trying to point out that he could have meant something that was actually a flex, if you will, that would have confused those who knew they could force you to do something, and you say, I'm going to do extra and show you my confidence and my security. Anyway, Jesus did not live in this sort of pacifistic, no-boundaries kind of approach. When it came to people who disrespected him and disrespected his boundaries, he disrespected them right back. And I'm not saying that he was merely retaliatory. I'm saying that he respected his own boundaries and his own sense of relationship. He was not friends with the hypocritical Pharisees. He called them hypocrites, he called them a brood of vipers, and he let them go their way, and he went his way. He did not have relationship with people who tried to abuse him, people who said that he was operating on the authority of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And I don't know exactly how that would translate to modern parlance, but we'll go with the original wording. He made a logical argument that if A house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And he did not go any further than that. If their first reaction to him was aggression, he would often defend himself, push right back, and let them go their way, and he didn't have anything to do with these people. Now, of course, a Christian will try to argue with you about the crucifixion itself. When it came to arguments levied against him at that time, he did not respond. He did not defend himself. Why would that have happened? Again, the Christian will try, or the no boundaries Christian will try to raise this as an example of why we should behave in like manner. But that again is a massive shift from the way that Jesus behaved up until that point. He constantly defended himself and separated himself from those individuals in those cases. Now, in this case, they had tried to levy law against him. In fact, they strong-armed even the Roman government into giving in to putting him to death. This is consistent, if you think about it, with what he had said before. 
and what he advised us to do. He even advised the Israelites that while the Pharisees were not to be followed in how they behaved, they did have a good understanding of the law. But he pointed out that they, the Jews, should exceed the Pharisees in righteousness. But whenever it came to something that had to do with falling under the law, he told them to respect it. Even the question about taxes, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? He answered, give to God what is his and give to Caesar what is his. He never went against going against the law of the land. Now, we may raise the point that a lot of the laws are immoral, and I would agree. The people at that time believed that the taxes were immoral, and a lot of people today would argue that taxes are immoral. An immoral boundary, if you will, an immoral rule. And I would agree with both of those, and I don't doubt that Jesus probably did too. A more thorough reading will show that Jesus saw himself as exempt from the temple tax, and yet he still indirectly, not through his own pocket, but indirectly paid it in this instance. It's a conversation between him and Peter. It's a very much more complicated area of Jesus' own argumentation. But he preached and behaved in like manner of when the law is barreling down against you, you submit. You, give, you let them have their way. Why? He pointed this out himself also to um, Pontius Pilate. He told Pontius Pilate that you would have no authority in these areas unless my father had given it to you in the first place. Now that does not, imp uh, that does not imply that the authority will use it justly. He does point out that they wouldn't have it unless it was the fathers in the first place. So in other words, the hierarchy goes like this. If the authority is judiciously, or sorry, legally doing something against you, even if it is immoral and against the higher authority of God, it is originally from the authority of God. So you give in to it in the sense of you allow them to have their way, you allow them to do what they will do because they bear the sword, as Paul would call it, or Peter, I think, over you. That doesn't mean that you give in to it morally or call them good for doing it. Jesus never did that. And if you go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they gave in to the law of the land, so to speak. They allowed themselves to be thrown into the fiery furnace, but not for a moment did they concede that they were doing what was right. Now, this bears a great deal more study, but what I am trying to bring up for the moment is that it's not quite as simple as people try to portray it when it comes to the crucifixion. They had brought law upon Jesus' head. And he essentially let them have their way. Prior to that, they were simply trying to barrel down the law of Moses, as they would call it. And he pointed out, as is beautifully said in The Chosen, though not in the words necessarily, it's extra biblical, I am the law of Moses. He put himself above that law. But when it came to the domination of Rome over Israel, it was different. Anyways, and of course, uh, initially it was the law of the Sanhedrin and the force of the um, people with arms at the time that he submitted to. Prior to that, they simply tried to force their way without arms. I'm not trying to fully answer all of the questions that could come up in this area. I'm just, again, bringing up that this is a great deal more complex. 
and in Jesus' general life and lifestyle, when people disrespected him and called him names and so on, he did not just cave. And neither, by the way, was he silent. Understanding the behavior of Jesus, again, merits a great deal more debate, but that is not the point of my topic today. So, the Christians who do believe this, in my opinion, BS about no such things as boundaries because Jesus, Jesus. What they are effectively doing is disrespect on one end or the other. doesn't matter how they do it. If they disrespect boundaries because Jesus, Jesus, they are disrespecting people, and I'll show you how. If it's the kind of people who don't care about boundaries in their own lives, they will go all the extra miles possible. They will always go as far as they can and further still. They effectively disrespect their own boundaries. This very likely, by the way, comes out of Christians who were raised in highly domineering households where their parents never respected boundaries for their children. For example, the child at this point has become a teen, they're 14 years old or older, and the parents will still barge into their room as if, as if it's their own territory. Now you might say, legally, yes, it is their own territory because they own the house. Sure, but this child is becoming an adult and they should be being taught property rights. What better way to teach a child property rights, in this case a teen, than by respecting their property in the sense of the property you're giving them their room. This is a very common thing as well. And it's interesting to me, I've talked about the fact that I'm on this website Quora before, or yeah, I've talked about it before that I'm on this website Quora. And this topic came up and I'm noticing an increasing amount, an increasing amount of respondents to things like this, where the parent is saying, you know, I'm just barging into my child's room, not that they put it that way, um, and so on and so forth, asking some question. And the respondents are angry to no end. To me, it kind of shows that the responders probably went through this themselves and they hated every second of it when parents just barge into their especially teenage children's rooms as if they have no rights of their own. It is a clear disrespect of expected boundaries. Anyway, they act as if it's completely their own space still and aren't treating their children as if they have any privacy. Privacy, for heaven's sakes, in the modern day. But on the other hand, if you're not the kind of person who is going to react with anger to that sort of thing, which I think is rather appropriate, but you'll simply cave to a parent who abuses in these and other ways your boundaries and disrespects them entirely, then you might essentially choose as an adaptation to believe that their disrespecting of boundaries is a good thing. It's okay, it's perfectly permissible, right? You will moralize their disrespect of your boundaries. And what better way to double down on that position than to essentially claim that that is exactly how Christianity is supposed to work. If it's always okay for people to completely disrespect you, to abuse you, to call you names, etc., etc., and you put up no boundaries, then it's good. It's the right thing to do. Now, 
addressing this on the Christian level just for a moment because it is going to raise some difficult questions. I don't want to shy away from questions. I've just been pointing this out. We shouldn't be shying away from genuine questions. The question that is going to be raised at this point is when Jesus and others in the epistles talk about the fact that when we are called names and abused and so on for the name of Christ, we should not react with hate, we should not retaliate, and so on. Now, I agree with that as far as it goes. In other words, you do not return evil for evil. But that is not the same thing as simply setting up boundaries, as not continuing to associate with such people if you have the capacity to do so. For example, when Paul was abused town after town and mistreated and violence was both done and planned against him, he did not continue to engage with those people. The, often the other Christians helped him get out of that situation. And if they fought him, often he fought back. Paul argued against these often Jews who were trying to stop him and abuse him. They did not behave in this way of just allowing people to abuse him. He did not, again, hate them in return. He did not return violence for violence, but he argued and even to the high priest himself, he called him a whitewashed wall. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not he realized that this was the high priest at the time. But whatever the case, he often defended himself, at least in words, in arguments. He did not return hate for hate. But, as I've argued before, fighting against people who are willing to be abusive in argumentation and so on, and arguing against them is in fact the way to love them best because they have been solidified in bad behavior and the best thing to do for people who are behaving in this way is to hopefully wake them up. If you argue well and show them the holes in their, in their logic and so on, you might help them realize that there is a real problem here and they have to wake up. So, yes, don't return evil for evil, but don't not defend yourself. Now, that is the one way in which people disrespect boundaries when they, in this Christian or moralized sense, don't allow themselves to have a single boundary. But there is the second way. And I've even heard this argument uh, from people who disrespected in this latter way. My boundaries are essentially, though they won't say it this way, my boundaries are having or allowing no boundaries for anybody else. In other words, I have every right to encroach on everybody else's boundaries because I care so much about everyone else. Now, of course, that's not what's actually going on, but that is their argument. By the way, what's really going on is typically that this is the kind of person who can't stand um, failing in relationships in general. So they will encroach on, they will disrespect other people's boundaries because to lose their quote relationship with such a person is something they can't emotionally handle. So they have to constantly just keep badgering other people until they can maintain the relationship. And I'll get into that latter part in a little while. But the, the disrespect is already fairly plain in what I just said. If you give 
other people no right to have boundaries or in this case even to have free choice because you have to you have to help them you have to reach them for the lord you have to convert them to christianity what you are actually doing is again and i'm repeating myself yes but what you are actually doing is disrespecting the other person's boundaries and you are disrespecting their right to have free will of their own the further and further you do this, the more you will chase reasonable people away. People who might, in the course of time, convert to Christianity, if you will give it time and patience and not have this desperation that really creeps stable people out. It chases them away, once again. So if you give other people no boundaries because your intentions are so pure, you're going to chase good people away and you should by the way because that is not good or moral or christian behavior so i've been giving example after example and i want to build this before giving the definition simply because it'll help the definition make sense what is a boundary it is essentially the acknowledgement that a human being or organization has needs and preferences now if you take that and again this is another kind of working definition of mine as i've been thinking about it trying to make sense out of all of this but if that definition makes sense then what is shown is that any time you don't care about another person's boundaries what you are really doing is not respecting the fact that they have their own needs and preferences now, what you are also doing is showing that you care a great deal about your needs and preferences. In fact, you care so much about them that you will usurp and disrespect and dishonor other people's needs and preferences by not giving them the right to have their own boundaries. What you are effectively doing is you are trying to be the only one in the relationship that actually exists in an essential sense, right? If you don't give the other person their needs and preferences and the only ones that matter are your own, then who is the other person in the relationship? What rights do they actually have? This, by the way, is one of the reasons why people consider politicians and the government and bureaucrats to be so inhuman. Because they take away other people's rights to have boundaries and preferences. Because they encroach on them, often by force or at least ultimately by force. In fact, in every case, ultimately they will come to force. So quite plainly, to have a functional, and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, a functional and adult relationship with anything or anyone, there has to be boundaries on both sides. It doesn't mean that they're permanent. It doesn't mean that they are unchanging you can renegotiate you can change things as you go along for example in a new acquaintance uh, and especially going into romance it should be a very good thing and healthy thing that initially you have boundaries that over time change why because romantic relationship is a relationship of deep trust ideally you have to build that which means initially you're going to have some boundaries, but those boundaries, some of them by definition, will diminish or even be eliminated through the course of time. 
things like sex or physical contact. In order to have a healthy and mature adult relationship, you're going to have to have conversations about past, about emotions, about instabilities and difficulties, and establish things that are and are not permissible at a given time. To, grow, to raise children in a responsible way, teaching them how to be full-fledged human beings and adults. Much of it is going to be the same. You have open conversations. You talk rationally about these things. Now, before continuing, I do want to point out that sometimes what a person calls a boundary that sounds very much like this is not, in fact, a boundary at all. The kind of boundary of, we can't talk about this hot-button topic because I will just go off the handle. I'll lose my shit if we talk about this thing. That's not a boundary. <laughs> that is an instability. That is an insecurity that really should be dealt with. I don't know how. You know, In each individual case, it's going to be a bit different. Maybe you can talk, talk it through. Maybe there needs to be talk therapy, something like that. But that is not an example of a boundary. That is an example of somewhere where a person is still deeply immature, hasn't grown up, hasn't adapted or processed that trauma, and they really need to. The fact that they would set it up as a, quote, boundary that we cannot touch this hot button topic really shows the fact that they're not ready for an adult relationship in that area just yet. That's a red flag, by the way. Anything and everything should be capable of being talked about. But at the end of the day, there are still things that we struggle with. There are still things that we're growing in, adapting to, and we might need some help. We might need some boundaries, healthy boundaries, before we can really come to a point where we're healthy in it. But again, if it's, if you touch this thing, I'm going to blow, I'm going to lose my crap, that's a red flag. That's not a boundary. To conclude, a boundary is an admission, and a healthy admission, by the way, of your own preferences and sometimes your own needs. Perhaps the preferences, preferences and needs of society. Perhaps the preferences and needs of other people adjacent to a relationship, but they never, nevertheless encroach on yours because they are part of the circle of friends or relationships in general. Boundaries most of the time have to do with honest, genuine, rational, objective conversations. You need to talk these things through. Back to an earlier example. I need you to not be texting me for three days. The very fact that a person would bring that up in the first place is an admission of a preference based on, perhaps in this case, a need. I have to focus, or I have to be gone for a few days, or something like that. You are being open and honest about the fact that you need or ask request of the other person to do something for you, in this case for a limited amount of time. When you set up a boundary, temporary or not temporary, you are admitting your own essential existence at a deep level. You are saying, I am here, I am real, because I have preferences, 
and I have needs. Boundaries, they are at a deep level a proof of the existence of individual wills, individual persons, individual organizations. They are vitally important to relationship. If we didn't have any other people or things in the world at all except one individual, then obviously boundaries would not be needed. But we do have other people and organizations. Boundaries are absolutely essential for relationships. Anyways, I think I've made my point fairly points fairly clearly, so I will end there. Hope you all found it interesting. Till next time.